Now we're visiting the town of Leadville in the US state of Colorado. In the late 1870s, the discovery of silver high up in the Rocky Mountains near Leadville produced one of the largest silver rushes in American history. Within years, the area's population climbed from just a few hundred to 35,000. Among them, there were many Irish men and their families seeking opportunity in the post-famine years. Life was short for many as they faced harsh winters, long working hours and grim working conditions. As we'll hear, they went on strike and took on the state government and a hostile media. More than 1,300 are buried at Leadville's Evergreen Cemetery in the pauper section in unmarked sunken graves. They're now commemorated at the cemetery as just yesterday the Leadville Irish Miners Memorial was unveiled. This memorial was created as a result of the research of Dr. James Walsh. Earlier, I spoke to James Walsh, historian and professor in the political science department of the University of Colorado in Denver. He spent 20 years studying Irish history in Leadville and is passionate about this overlooked chapter of Irish-American labor history. Um, okay, so just tell me first of all, where is Leadville? What is Leadville, or what was Leadville? Leadville is in the center of Colorado, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. It's an old silver mining town. It was originally a gold camp, but in 1877, silver was discovered. It blew up into one of the largest silver booms in North American history. It's very high up as well, isn't it? It's the highest incorporated town in North America, 10,200 feet. How Irish was Leadville then in the, say, let's say the 1870s? Yeah, per capita, this is one of the most Irish places in North America. About a tenth of the population was born in Ireland, another tenth or so were Irish American, and so that made it the most Irish place between, in my estimate, the West Coast and the Midwest. This was an enormously important Irish cultural center, really. And the mines bore very Irish, some of them anyway, bore very Irish names. They did. The Robert Emmett, the O'Donovan Rasa, names like the Maid of Aaron, the Molly. I mean, maybe up to a quarter of the mines had Irish names. What were the conditions like in those mines? Pretty brutal. Uh, the, the shifts were 10 to 12 hours, six days a week. They were working at extreme altitude, and in the winters, the temperatures could go as much as 30 or 40 below zero. There's stories of miners sweating in the bowels of the mine, clothing completely drenched in sweat, and then emerging in the surface where it's 10 below, and by the time they, they got home, their clothing was frozen solid. So the conditions was something they never prepared for. They couldn't have prepared for. And adjusting to the altitude and not having adequate shelter, really. The housing was flimsy wooden shacks for the most part. No access to any real health care. There were epidemics that spread through the communities. And the Irish were the poorest of all the ethnic groups in the town. So they were vulnerable. And the cemetery shows that. And they were the poorest. Now, you know, in most parts of the American West, the Chinese would have been the poorest, but not in Leadville. No, the, Leadville had a, a ban on, on Chinese miners. That was from the very beginning of the, of the rush. Uh, there, there were a couple of Chinese miners who attempted to challenge the ban, and they were thrown out. Uh, one was killed. There was a place outside of Leadville called Pigtail Gulch. 
where uh, the body of a murdered Chinese man was thrown in, in, in the gulch, in the mine, actually. And I presume then that the miners also were not being paid a king's ransom. $3 a day, you know, that compared to coal miners, that, that was a good wage. But these miners were arguing that having to work at 10,000 feet in the conditions when they were dying young, they, they were deserving of a, of a higher wage. So this is not a, um, a situation of miners seeking their fortune in the Wild West. This was really corporatized mining. You, you, the only mining you were going to do was for a wage where someone else was making the money off of your labor. Who were the mine owners? I mean, in, in places like Butte, Montana, a lot the miners were a hell of a lot of Irish miners, but the mine owners were also Irish. Was that the case in Leadville? Not the case in Leadville. There were some fairly successful Irish Americans in Leadville that had worked their way up. But for the most part, these were mines owned by absentee owners who lived either in New York, the, the East Coast, or, or in England. And so the Irish were fighting these invisible financial forces. And they were visited. The miners of Leadville were visited at, at one point by Oscar Wilde. What in God's name was Oscar Wilde doing in Leadville? Well, not, not only Oscar Wilde, I mean, every prominent Irishman crossing the country stopped in Leadville. And that was because everyone knew that that was a place to go if you, if you wanted support for all things Irish. So Oscar Wilde gave a speech at the Tabor Opera House. The title was Aesthetics and the Ethics of Art, I believe. <laughs> the newspapers predicting that he would be thrown out of the town by the miners. But, but the miners quite, quite enjoyed him and took him to the bowels of the matchless mine, where legend has it he outdrank them. He said he had three-course meal at the bottom of the mine, the first course whiskey, the second whiskey, and the third whiskey. <laughs> and, and that's the legend. But what is clear is that he won over these miners. They, they didn't see him as some sort of threat. He, he found common ground there. And uh, Michael Davitt's another important figure who traveled to Leadville twice to, to raise funds for the land league. He considered Leadville one of the um, key fundraising destinations for the land league. And he, I'm sure while he was there, he was also talking to the union leaders, doing what he could to support them in their struggle. At some point in the late 1870s or around 1880, the miners have, have had enough and there, and there is a strike. Tell me about the, the leader of the strike or the man that they chose to become the leader of the strike. Yeah, this is one of the most little-known characters in Colorado history who everyone should know about. Michael Mooney, 28 years old, immigrated to the U.S. when he was about 19, made his way to the Leadville Silver Mines, met his wife there. In May of 1880, 5,000 miners walked out of the mines. They gathered on Fairview Hill and declared, Michael Mooney, you're our leader. He didn't ask to be the leader. They, they told him and he was a natural leader. They put him on a horse the next day for a parade through Main Street. He said to the men, remain peaceful and remain sober. His message was, we're not gonna get anything accomplished through violence, and we have to be very careful about how we present ourselves to the public. And the men followed Mooney, they, they believed in him. I call him a working class intellectual in the sense that he had no formal education, but he had deep understanding of what we would today call political science, history. The speeches he gave were, were laced with, with philosophy. He understood economics. He was just a, a deep thinker. Irish immigrants like Mooney need to be held up to the light as a way to demonstrate that working class Irish were just as 
much full of ideas and philosophy as, as the more privileged brothers and sisters. So Mooney was blacklisted after the strike, traveled all over the American West with his family, eventually had seven kids with his wife, and then made his way to Los Angeles around the turn of the century, and that's where he died around 1923. I think he died on St. Patrick's Day. The other thing I learned about Mooney is I would consider him what we would today call anti-racist. By that, what I mean is there's a couple of references that come up. One is when the miners gathered on Fairview Hill when the strike started, a reporter accompanied them there to record the, the speeches. And one of the miners said, three cheers for Dennis Carney. Dennis Carney was a, an Irishman on, on the West Coast who stirred up anti-Chinese sentiment and gained a lot of notoriety for that through the, the California Working Men's Party. When Mooney heard that miner say three cheers for Dennis Carney, he shut it down. He said that Dennis Carney will do his thing, we'll do ours. And I think what he was really saying to those miners is, is that that's not who we are. That's the battle we're fighting against. We're not going to pile on the Chinese. So I, I do consider um, Mooney a person who was way ahead of his time, a representative of work, a working class intellectualism that is often not highlighted because there's so few written accounts. The vast majority of these miners were illiterate and the vast majority of the, the kinds of desperately poor working-class Irish immigrants at that time didn't have writing skills, so we don't have those accounts. What we do have, though, are the transcriptions of Mooney's speeches that were documented in Leadville's newspapers, and they give us these hints and clues. I believe there's hundreds of Moonies behind that that we've never heard of. What was the response then of the mine owners and the authorities who, one assumes, were supportive of the mine owners? <laughs> yeah, the Leadville's business community panicked. The silver mines of Leadville were the foundation for the entire economy of Colorado at that time. They knew there was no real threat here. They, they knew that these miners weren't, weren't going to do damage to anything. They weren't threatening anyone. But they used their leverage and convinced the governor that this was a, an insurrection. This was a, an uprising. And the Denver Post printed the headline, the Molly Maguires have taken control of the state. So the governor caved into that pressure and sent the National Guard, declared martial law, sent the National Guard to Leadville. And their orders were to arrest the strikers under vagrancy laws and force them to build roads and chain gangs. So the, the men were facing a very difficult decision they couldn't win. They, they knew they couldn't win. The strike ended after three weeks. Whether that strike was a victory or, or not, I think it's, it's an important moment because it shows this important culture of organizing and resistance with an element of just a desire for respectability among the Irish. They're, they're not saying, we're going to burn this town down if we're not you know, shown respect. They're saying, look what we've done you know, haven't we earned this already? And, and, and we're, look how we're carrying ourselves. They're, they're constantly fighting against the, car the simian caricatures as if they're haunted by those. <laughs> they have to counter them in any, ch any chance they get. I know this is a very personal story to you. I know you're a huge admirer of it. It, it, has, it has come across of, of Michael Mooney. But it became even more personal when you visited Leadville and you were asked to go and have a look at the, the cemetery. But something happened while you were there. Tell us about that. A friend, this was around 2003, wanted to show me at Evergreen Cemetery. So I thought we were going to look at headstones. So I was, all right, great, let's, let's go. Well, my friend had 
spent most of her life in Leadville. She somehow knew that I needed to see this place. So she walked me through the headstones, the, the, the regular part of the cemetery, to the back where there was a pauper cemetery. I didn't even see the graves. I, I thought we had just left the cemetery. We were, we were in a forest, a pine forest. And then I, I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked down and realized that all the furrows and the holes surrounding me were graves, and they stretched as far as I could see in every direction. And then it, it washed over me that these are the people I've been researching for years. And that's one of the most poignant moments in my life because I knew in that, in that moment, I knew that, oh, okay, this is why I'm here. This is, this is my job. This is my responsibility. I'm going to do what I can with my life to, to bring these voices forth. You know, it was a perfect time in my life, Miles, to be brought to that pauper cemetery because my uncle and I were researching my own genealogy, our genealogy together at the time. My father didn't know anything, so nothing was passed down. This was before the Internet was, was the way you did genealogy. This, we had to go to county courthouses and church basements. And so what we learned is a history of death and injury through industrial accidents. My great-great-grandmother was killed in an industrial fire in Pittsburgh. Two of my great-great-grandparents were killed by trains, and one had a brother who was killed by a train, and my great-grandfather was a brakeman on the train. He was thrown off and injured his foot. So one after the other after the other, these industrial accidents and dying young, and on and on and on. So that was in my consciousness, and I was trying to understand how, how, that, how that led to who I am, and so standing in that cemetery and looking at those sunken graves, I realized that this was what I'd been led to. So I don't know, make of that what you will, whether you believe in destiny or not. I'm not sure where I stand, <laughs> but certainly that was not a place I went to. That was a place that chose me. I didn't choose it. It chose me. One of the saddest things, though, about that graveyard, I mean, you, you talk about possibly hundreds who would have died in industrial accidents. But one of the saddest things that you point out about that graveyard is the number of children who were buried there. That's right. Well, there's a couple of thousand in the Catholic section. The average age is 22. Something around 45% are, are five or younger. Nearly half of them are babies and stillborn. And that's a sobering experience. To see the, the, the short graves and to see the numbers and to realize... So those were a result of epidemics. Those were a result of inadequate housing, the brutal winters. A lot of women died in childbirth. We're still learning. That cemetery continues to speak to us. My, my, I have a team of students right now researching every single grave through the records, trying to understand the lives of the people buried there. And we're learning quite a bit. For women, for example, there, there's, a, there's a couple of hundred women buried there. The number one cause of death was violence. So there's not natural causes. And violence means accidents like fires, domestic violence, suicide. So it's a very sobering space. I think it does reshape and challenge the dominant narrative about the Irish in the West. That narrative being that the further West the Irish went, the easier life became. You think that's a myth? I think it's at least a partial myth. I, I, I don't want to completely challenge that because there's some truth to that. I mean, you look at San Francisco, there, there's examples of that, that. There's probably data that one could collect that would support that. 
But what I'm saying is that there are social milieus that have been ignored, and those are the working class milieu. That means how many hundreds of Irishmen are buried in remote areas of the Rocky Mountain West and the Great Plains along railroad tracks that they worked and built? How many Irishmen are buried in remote mining camps throughout the Rocky Mountain region in California? The numbers must be in the thousands, maybe even in the, in the tens of thousands. So that narrative has to include that. We're all subject to an inherent classism in the way we look at the Irish-American narrative, and we have to fix that. We have to deal with that. The move to build a memorial to commemorate the dead of the cemetery, it was important to you, I think, because you're one of the prime movers. It was important to you that this be very, very inclusive as a memorial. Yeah, I I hold Irish-Americans to a high bar. I think any people that have, whose ancestors were colonized and exiled and occupied and their language was taken, that they should be first in line, first in line when it comes to standing in solidarity with others who face the same. So what to me that means, if we're going to build a memorial on what was once indigenous land, we have to recognize that this was once indigenous land and honor the, the descendants of the people who were displaced. So in this case, that means the Southern Ute Nation. I've built a partnership with the cultural director there, and she actually came out and blessed the ground. It was very moving. I mean, the audience of about 150 people were in tears because she was comparing the Irish story and the Ute story. She said, you're from strong people. I descend from strong people. We all descend from strong people. So that's important. The other relationship that we're, we're trying to build is with today's current immigrant community in Leadville. It's a very large community from northern Mexico, 40% of Leadville. And they're segregated to the outskirts of town and trailer parks. They work the service jobs in the, in the wealthy ski resorts. So Vail and Aspen and Breckenridge... All the service workers live in Leadville. Not all, but many live in Leadville because it's the only affordable place in that region. And they and they commute an hour to go work in the in the restaurants, in the hotels, in the ski lifts. And so, honoring that community who faced some of the same xenophobia that the Irish faced, you know, in the 19th century, is a way that we can say, yeah, this memorial honors the dead. To quote Mother Jones, Miles, pray for the dead, but fight like, like hell for the living. living. <laughs> and that, that's what I'd like this memorial to be, is a reminder to Irish Americans. Yeah, we need to pray for the dead, but by God, let's fight like hell for the living. You actually managed to track down the granddaughter of Michael Mooney because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a huge, a huge project for you. But she didn't know anything about this story. What does that tell you about about memory, about Irish-American memory, about working-class Irish-American memory? <laughs> That's such an important question. So I, I gave a talk at a genealogy society, and, and I, I made a joke, oh, one day I'll, I'll make contact with Mooney's grandchildren. So a woman approached me, and she said, I'll find them. So two days later, she emailed me a name and number. Marilyn Mooney lived in Southern California in her early 90s. And she and I had several phone conversations, and just a wonderful woman. And my, my question I approached her with, and I, I was fairly certain that, that I knew the answer already, is do the descendants know the story of, of the strike and of the leader Mooney was and what he did? And my suspicion was no. 
and that was confirmed. The family only knew he was a minor, and that's where it ended. They knew nothing, nothing. And this is only two generations. You know, this was the granddaughter. You would think that surely she would have overheard her parents saying something, but knew nothing. So I, I sent them my manuscript and much of my writing. The past year has been very busy for me, so we I haven't been in touch. I keep thinking to call Marilyn. But I just learned from that genealogist. She sent me her obituary, so she's now passed. So I'm hoping to, to build relationships with the next generation, which would be around my age. Let's hope that happens. Were you surprised that she didn't know this, this history? I mean, you would expect that there would have been great pride in what Michael Mooney at least tried to achieve. He didn't succeed, but at least he tried, and he tried hard back in 1880. Yeah, I, I think this cuts to the heart of who is Irish America? Irish Americans have scratched and clawed their way to a, a place today where the vast majority of Irish Americans are very comfortable and educated. But that struggle hasn't been passed down. It hasn't, it's been lost, I believe. I think this memorial is a reminder more than it is a memorial. You know, what Mooney faced was a shaming and ostracism, made to feel like a second-class citizen. His quote, I mean, I would have the whole American flag, but but by God, I have a corner of it. I think that that speaks to the struggle. So he didn't want his children, his grandchildren, to also feel like second-class citizens. So just by, by not passing those stories down, they, they never felt that. And somehow I think that is inherent to the Irish-American story. That first generation had to be radical. They were desperate. <laughs> there was no other choice. <laughs> Subsequent generations didn't have to be radical because they had the status quo behind them. So I think that reaching back and reclaiming that history is one way that Irish Americans can reclaim a, a piece of themselves and also better understand their history. And so for this memorial, there, I see it as having two prominent symbols. One is for Irish Americans, a visible, visual reminder of the, the toll of, the human toll of industrial labor, digging the canals, building the railroads, working the mines. How many died? We, we need to know that. You know? We, we need to face that. You know? And I think for people in Ireland, it's a reclaiming of the lost. I've never met an Irish family that doesn't have a lost ancestor <laughs> who drifted west and no one ever heard from them. So that, that's what's happened is we originally thought this, oh, we're just going to honor these 1,300 people. But it's become so much more. Now the memorial is a memorial to all the lost Irish. And people are going there even though they don't have ancestors there just to feel that energy. And so I, I think it's a, it's, the memorial has become and is becoming a sacred Irish-American space in a region that's long been neglected. And that was Jim Walsh of the University of Colorado, Denver on the Irish immigrant labourers and their families buried in Leadville Evergreen Cemetery, who are now commemorated with a memorial unveiled yesterday. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.